Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And joining me today from Seattle via Skype is Mr. Sean Bodwin, author of novels Going Nowhere Faster, Fade to Blue, You Killed Wesley Payne, The Infects, and Wise Young Fool. Uh, Sean is the founding uh, editor of the arts and culture website, theweeklings.com, which is a favorite of mine. And his latest book is called Welcome Thieves, which is now on shelves. Sean, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking the time, man. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. So, so Sean, your, your latest book, uh, Welcome Thieves, is out now. When did that come out? Was that re- it was pretty recently, uh, right? It was the March before last, so it's been on over a year. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm working on the follow-up novel to it as we speak in fact i'm handing it in hopefully by the end of the week so oh awesome yeah okay looking forward to that uh so you have got uh, a pretty crazy uh list of songs here a lot of these i have not heard before and some of the artists i have actually not heard before as in fact wow so, yeah no i'm, I'm really uh I'm, I'm looking forward into uh to, to getting into these uh, the first one I do know, and I love it, and it actually uh, put me back on a little Doors kick recently. Actually, uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> it is, uh, it is by the Doors, and it's called the. It's the leadoff track to "La Woman," I believe. It's the Changeling. Yeah, um, the Doors are are weird. They're such a, a polemic band. At least in my experience, people either really love them or really hate them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I tend to love them, and in fact, I think. L.A. Woman is, is their best album. Yep. I heard that uh, it's possibly the only album that Morrison didn't show up drunk and stoned to <laughs> pretty much every recording session. Uh, so that may be why it, it seems a lot more pulled together than yeah. the other ones. Yeah. Um, but I picked The Changeling because it's it's unusual for a Doors song in that it's really funky. Uh-huh. It definitely is, yeah. Uh, it has this huge throbbing bass line all the way through it, uh, which is also weird for the Doors since they don't have a bass player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they're known for obviously these session guys would come in and play on some songs, but a lot of songs don't have bass because Ray Manzarek just plays the bass line with his left hand. Yeah. Um, I f- and I found out much later after ha- loving this album and this song in particular that it was Jerry Sheff, who's uh, Elvis's bass player is the guy playing the line which is why it's so fantastic oh no way i didn't know that yeah wow that's cool yeah you know i could never figure out why the doors didn't have a bass player well they just figured you know ray fills up so much space yeah uh, that they, they didn't need it although you know you could argue that some songs could certainly have used it yeah i always thought that too but i i love this track i always have like you say it's funky it's almost you know not quite a peace frog but it's just got that really kind of funky vibe to it it's a, it's a great doors pick to me, the Doors are of any rock band are the band that sounds the most like the '60s, yes. or, or what the '60s was really like. Yes, I totally agree. Because they're, they're extremely dark. Yeah. And uh, you know this idea that it was all summer of love and hippies and peace and stuff. You talk to anyone who lived through that time and how dark and ugly it was mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. The Doors sort of just totally refute that idea just yeah. by their existence yeah so you know i, I particularly like them in, in that respect even though jim morrison's a little ridiculous his excess in a lot of ways oh yeah you know the the, the shaman poet you know byron-esque figure uh <laughs> is, is half bullshit but even that is 
reflective of the late sixties and early seventies too. So yeah. Have you read, uh, no one gets out of here alive. It's funny because I grew up in Connecticut in a pretty small town and, uh, they had like a shopping center with a Walden books in it, yeah. which, uh, if you're in Canada, they probably didn't have, but, um, I'd go there all the time when my mom went grocery shopping, I'd walk over to the bookstore and it seems like for a year or maybe longer, no one gets out of here alive was like in a stand next to the register. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, the picture of him, just that title and not knowing who the doors were because I was really young then, it really freaked me out. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, yes, I did acquire a copy much oh. later and read it. Yeah, yeah, I, I read that a long time ago. That was almost my introduction to the Doors because as a kid, you know, I wasn't a huge Doors fan, but uh, I did read that book and it kind of led me in that direction. But yeah, I, I agree with you about the Jim Morrison stuff. It was uh, a little bit overblown. I had a I had a um, copy of his book of poetry oh, yeah. <laughs> at some point, and it's it's really really bad. <laughs> but. But, you know, it works for a lot of the songs. Well, exactly. Right. And it, it was a completely different time, you know. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but trying to read it without the music in the background, I don't advise to, I, to oh, a listener. I completely agree. I completely agree with you. Sean, your, uh, your next tune is by Soft Machine, and it's called mm. Hope for Happiness. You can't really do it anymore, but... I started buying albums when I was, I don't know, 11, yeah. 12, because my uncle very fortuitously had just given me a stack of records he didn't want anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, I literally had a Donald Duck record player. <laughs> I, I had the Mickey Mouse record player, actually. I, I did. did. Did you really? Yeah, the, no, the suitcase one with yes. the white handle? Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I had Donald, and as you know, like Mickey, like the tone arm is his arm, and That's the right. hand is the needle cartridge. Yeah, it had the big um, glove on it. So I, I'm playing like these Rick Wakeman solo albums, and <laughs> Yes, and Traffic, and 10CC, and all the stuff my uncle gave me on the stupid Donald Duck uh, record player. But it, it, it made me fall in love with vinyl. I, I still have a lot of vinyl and still buy and sell it. But um, yeah. So what I would do, even at a really young age, is... Anytime I was near a thrift store, I would just go in and buy up a bunch of records for a quarter or 50 cents then. Mm -hmm. And and you could just buy them based on the art, you know, and take them home and listen to them. If they were no good, you could frisbee them out in the backyard or exactly. do whatever. Yeah. Um, so I discovered a lot of music, unusual music, not because I had such a, a knowledge. It was just that I was willing to blow $8 on 14 yeah. albums. Yeah. And the soft machine, this album, is it's how I acquired that. Cool. Yeah, I'm not familiar at all with this stuff, soft machine. Um, Robert Wyatt is sort of famous, the, the drummer vocalist, um, as being kind of a nut, and his solo albums are fairly known. And in the prog world, Okay. Uh, which isn't not Czechoslovakia, but <laughs> Prague <laughs> world. Uh, I think they're pretty well known as like the second tier, you know, behind Hawkwind and Can, uh. King Crimson. Okay. But uh, their first three albums are pretty great. They're they're uh, melodically, uh, vocally very unusual. Yeah. Did you? So you listened to the song? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and I enjoyed it. I mean, 
Yeah, I, I liked it. I liked it. You know, and I always say that um, one of my favorite things about doing the show is the discovery aspect of this. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, I would recommend to to the listeners to to jump on Spotify and check this out. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a three part um, suite, mm-hmm. and it's broken up in the album into three songs, even though it's one song hope for happiness with another song in between mm-hmm. so if you're going to listen to it you have to listen to all three yeah it's not just to listen to the first part yeah so sean your uh, next tune is uh, by sid barrett of pink floyd fame and uh, the tune is called octopus yeah sid barrett kind of changed my life <laughs> oh <laughs> for wow. sure probably like you i don't know if you're you're in your mid-40s yeah as i am um like me you grew up with pink floyd um it, in my case, to the point that I, I really can't stand listening to them at all anymore. <laughs> okay. uh, and it's not really Pink Floyd's fault. Uh, it's just that they were so ubiquitous. They were on the radio. They were at every party, every kid's yes. car. Yeah. It, it, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, I know backwards and forwards and never want to hear again the rest of my life. Yeah. But I can still listen to the first couple albums that Sid was on, mm-hmm. which are, you know, not widely played. Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yep especially but in college i came across a cassette of uh the first two sid barrett albums mm-hmm. madcap laughs and the other one's just called barrett okay. and um they were recorded i think he was his mental health issues are well known yeah um why he was kicked out of the band and that's what shine on you crazy diamond is about is his you know essential essentially uh, dissolution yeah until he and actually i think pink in the wall the bob geldof character may mm-hmm. stand be a stand-in for him oh really anyway i'm not I'm, someone will call in and say that's completely wrong but <laughs> <laughs> i guess they, they had to kick him out of the band because yeah. he completely fallen apart and so he was institutionalized for a while and then someone put a recorder in front of him and he recorded these two solo albums which are just him and an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. and they're, they're really just unbelievable testaments to the kind of music that can only be made when you're that vulnerable uh when you've completely fallen apart you know they're almost they're childlike and and really innocent in a way that you couldn't possibly manufacture if you were trying to see i i I have not heard this but i want to go back and listen to these now they're those two albums are two of my all-time favorite albums yeah um so yeah i would recommend highly immediately acquiring both of them but they 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 don't sound like anything else which is to me a very high mark for a piece of music oh absolutely now would this be available on spotify likely not right uh sure i don't see why not oh would it yeah yeah I, i was just questioning the obscurity finding the the vinyl would be very difficult but yeah yeah you can get the cd easily and oh really watch them on youtube yeah oh yeah oh, okay good. i mean pink floyd is so massive that anything even tangentially connected to pink floyd yeah. you know has, has is accessible yeah that's a good point that's a good point i, I kind of figured that once it dropped off um you know he just kind of i didn't even know about this stuff i think he just i thought he just drifted away he he eventually did. He, he didn't make any more music. There's one. There's a album called Opal, which is like B sides from these two albums, and yep. then that's it. Okay. And he just went and lived with, like with his mom somewhere in England. Yeah, he was just completely a recluse, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I saw a picture of him once. 
it's amazing because he was a, a super handsome and exotic guy mm-hmm. in early Pink Floyd. Those pictures of him with like eye makeup and stuff. Yeah. And then I saw a picture of him in London, like riding a bike in, in the little town he lived in. He's fat and bald. And, and <laughs> <laughs> you know, never in a million years would you be like, oh, hey, that's Sid Barrett. <laughs> Uh, oh, that's a it's, shame. it's worth mentioning, by the way, though, that his guitar playing, yeah. it's just him and his acoustic guitars, is crazy. Really? Especially on, on Octopus. Okay. I don't know if it was part of him just being an underrated guitar player or because of his mental health issues, he was just completely without time signatures. Oh. The, the rhythmic changes in it are really, really complex, hmm. and for such a simplistic song, yeah. in a way, you, you just listen to the guitar. It's really astonishing. Hmm. Again, yeah. something I don't think you could do. Well, you wrote it out, notated it musically, it would be very impossible. <laughs> I love that though. That just makes me want to yeah. listen to it more. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've listened to to those two albums without exaggeration over a hundred times probably oh really and it, yeah and i can i can still do it you can put it on right now and I can sit down and listen to the whole thing wow well when we finish up here i'm definitely going to check that out good awesome. another convert <laughs> consider me converted <laughs> uh next tune sean is uh, by miles davis and it's called on the corner i picked this because it was the first Miles record I ever owned in exactly the same method I described where I got it, I think, for a dollar at Salvation Army or something. Yeah. And it has uh, like a cartoon drawing on the cover. Mm-hmm. So at, at the time, I knew nothing about jazz. I had heard of Miles Davis because my dad had a couple albums. but um, So I bought it and brought it home, and I didn't like it at all. Mm. <laughs> It's, it's a, a difficult piece of music, and without even having a rudimentary understanding of jazz, it's probably not a good entry point. You know, late in high school and through college, I completely had come around and, and figured a lot of stuff out, and then now it's one of my favorite Miles albums. Yeah. And, and when was this in his career? When did he put this out? Uh, it was 1972. Okay. So, you know, it's funny with David Bowie passing away. Mm-hmm. Everyone made such a, a big deal about how he was a chameleon and every album was uh, an album in and of itself and weren't connected to the others and they were all very different. Mm-hmm. And Miles is, was the first person to really do that. If someone says, hey, I like Miles Davis. It's like, well, what are you talking about? Because he had like six different careers. Really? <laughs> yeah, well, people know, you know, Sketches of Spain and Kind of Blue. Yes, Kind are, of Blue. And Two that, of the greatest selling albums ever. That's typically, yeah, sorry, most people's starter points, I think, entry points is, you know, kind of blue, I would say, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, that's one small slice in the Miles career. Okay. And, you know, he had the very early hard bop stuff and then the, the modal um, Birth of the Cool stuff mm-hmm. and then those two albums and then he completely changed around with Bitches Brew and Jack Johnson albums are a lot like super funky. His movement into that period was completely hated, by the way, oh, by really? jazz critics. Oh, yeah. Okay. In fact, that album, On the Corner, I think is his worst selling album ever. Oh. It was totally trashed and pilloried uh, when it came out. Really? Oh, yeah. 
people now acknowledge, you know, it's, it's one of the great pieces of music of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he definitely got the last laugh. But, um, you know, it's the kind of thing when uh, Dylan played electric and, and all the, the folkies totally yes. lost their mind. Yes, exactly. Uh, this is the same thing. He, he incorporated funk uh, into jazz, you know, one of the first people to do that. And um, people lost their mind. Yeah. But you can hear, you can hear Sly Stone. Uh, you can hear Hendrix in it. He based it on uh, a couple of Stockhausen experimental albums. So it has, it's, it's really avant-garde, mm-hmm. but it's funky as hell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you did you listen to the, the whole thing or just that song? Uh, a couple of the songs. So I was not familiar with the record, but I could definitely see how jazz purists would have a difficult time with it. There's a, you know, John Zorn, the alto sax player? Yes. He has a song uh, called Jazz Snob Eat Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm a fan of his, but I love that song because that that is absolutely my feeling. It's true, right? You almost feel like you're kind of in this intellectual war with, uh, you know, and you should know more about jazz when you speak to people about jazz, and it's this huge intellectual, you know, bullshit conversation that doesn't have to happen, really. Well, there's two parts of it. There's jazz critics yeah. who aren't typically very open-minded, as if they are the ones in position to tell Miles Davis, one of the greatest American musicians ever, yeah. what he should sound like, or whether he should be innovative, or what direction he should go in. Yeah. You know, as if they're the ones to decide for him. <laughs> so, you know, the pure the pure arrogance of that is is astonishing. Yeah. But um, the weird thing about jazz is like if you went up to someone and you said, "Hey, man, do you like rock?" Yeah. The answer would be, well, you know, rock encompasses like 40 different kinds of music. Exactly. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. But if you if you go up to someone and say, hey, do you like jazz? They'll be like, yeah, no, I'm not really into jazz. Yeah. But it, it's exactly the same thing. There's 40 different kinds of jazz. It's yeah. not like one monolithic thing. And, and they sound very different than yeah. other parts of jazz. So to just answer, like, I do like it or I don't like it is, is meaningless. Uh-huh. I would think that there are a lot of people out there, and that's a great, great point you just made. I, I think there are a lot of people out there who don't necessarily know that about jazz. Yeah, and, and if you have someone, you know, a friend or whatever, you sit them down and you take the time to say, hey, this is Bop, and this is Swing, and this is what Ellington sounds like, and this mm-hmm. is what John Zorn sounds like, and this is Fusion, and you're like, wow. I had no idea the breadth of that, and I don't like those three things, but I love these two things. Yeah, and all, you know, all that can be true. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, Sean, your next tune is uh, new to me as well. It's by a band called Stiff Little Fingers, and it's uh, Suspect Device. Um, yeah, it certainly is. <laughs> uh, I went through my deep Zeppelin phase. Yep. kind of mid mid middle school and into high school and and rock phase and then I started to really get into punk and hardcore mm-hmm. um, and so there was a there's a, a pretty big Connecticut hardcore scene I don't know if you're no. familiar with hardcore in general uh, what are we talking about well we could sit here and talk for two hours about what the supposed differences between hardcore and punk are. Okay. Um, <laughs> so like uh, black, black flag, for example, black flag would definitely be considered hardcore. Yes. Um, bad brains, minor threat. Yeah. Uh, Fugazi. Yeah. You know, all, all the big names, yeah. uh, dead Kennedy, circle jerks, 
and then punk is generally considered to be well i would consider it starting in uh the early new york cbg scene yeah you know, the ramones blondie was a hardcore band yeah. Yeah. <laughs> back, or a punk band i mean back then yeah and New York Dolls, especially, and sort of that that morphed into the English thing with the Sex Pistols and and all those bands. Mm-hmm. But hardcore is more stripping away the affectations of punk. Okay. So hardcore bands typically you'd never see a guy with a mohawk. Okay. Uh, I mean, it happens, but it was kind of like punk. The response of punk to the excesses of '70s rock was to say, "Hey, we don't play solos, and we barely know how to play our instruments." even though that's not always true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't have the groupies and the Learjets and the Coke. Uh, we're doing something that's a lot more honest and kind of hardcore was the response to when punk started to take on those same trappings. Really? So is it almost a response to bands like The Clash? No, not The Clash, because The Clash are revered for their authenticity and, and not falling into that. Although they did get hugely popular, so in some... Yeah really dramatic hardcore circles maybe the, they hated the clash for selling out because they actually you know london calling sold a million albums yeah yeah exactly it was more like local scenes um kids uh playing uh in bands diy do-it-yourself yeah. bands rarely having a solo in the song mm-hmm. not having stupid lyrics about you know sex and drugs uh a lot of it was straight edge which meant Kids were completely sober, mm-hmm. which was also sort of a reaction to those excesses. Mm-hmm. Make your own band, book your own tour, forget promoters. Uh, shows can be in like squats or garages. Or there was this place near where uh, I grew up called the Anthrax. That was the basement of a Firestone tire store. Okay, <laughs> and the huge bands would come through all the time. There all the time, um, but it was like work the door yourself pay the bands as much as, you know, don't keep the money and rip them off. Yeah. Bring the band home at night and put them up in your house. It's just super inclusive. Okay. Politically aware, too. Yeah. And probably not uh, as much of a political slant. It's progressive uh, because a hardcore, a lot uh, of people who are into it shave their heads. Mm-hmm. And so there was the whole, like, pro uh, or anti-skinhead uh, pro equality uh, skinhead scene versus the racist skinhead scene. Okay. Um, so it was definitely progressive and inclusive. Women, you know, could come and be in bands and not be harassed. And so it was political in that sense. But and, and it was also a reaction to Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Just living under the yoke of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, but it was mostly political in the sense of screw promoters, screw labels. Uh, do it all yourself and and uh, have the money go back to the bands. Okay, cool. Um, next one, we're going to change gears here a little bit. It's uh, Blue Oyster Cult, and the song is Hot <laughs> Rails to Hell. <laughs> um, yeah, I got beat up in seventh grade for liking Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> <laughs> and a Blue Oyster Cult shirt. Uh, kind of the older kids on the bus were yeah. were way into uh, you know Warrant and Winger and really? Motley Crue. Yeah, uh, the hair metal was huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I remember this kid was like, "Man, Blue Oyster called us a chick band." <laughs> really? And I was like, "Dude, have you looked at the cover of a Motley Crue album? Have you looked at the cover of Poison? Album? Yeah, like uh, look what the cat dragged in." 
<laughs> exactly. You sang Gloria Chacol as a chick band? <laughs> you know, they were kind of seen as a novelty band at the time because Godzilla and yeah. uh, Fear the Reaper was on AM radio all the time and Burning For You was hugely popular. Yeah. But people didn't realize their first couple albums didn't sound anything like that. Mm-hmm. And this song, Hot Rails For Hell, uh, which is metal as hell, yeah. and really um, is off the second album, Tyranny and Mutation. And it's a fantastic album. And if you, you could do, if you could pick a hundred friends and put some kind of money on it and just put that album on and be like, who is this? I bet you 98 of the friends wouldn't be able to, for a hundred bucks, wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to even guess that it's Bloister Call. But it's weird because they're from Long Island, but the, the first couple albums are like kind of Southern Fried Boogie metal. Are they really? I didn't know. Well, that. to me, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm sure it was recorded <laughs> recorded in some studio in Long Island, but yeah. you know, the song Hot Rails to Hell sounds like sped up Almond Brothers to me. Yeah, yeah, I could see it. I could see that, yeah. Yeah, but so the first time I heard that song, I was like, I love these guys. Yeah. Uh, again, not a popular position to have taken at my high school. <laughs> I, did have, I did have shirt-related problems. <laughs> <laughs> a number of times i also almost got beaten up at a uh, at a hardcore show for wearing a jimmy page t-shirt oh really wow <laughs> yeah wow i had gone to see the firm the night before oh wow with paul rogers yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and uh yeah, I was still secretly into rock, even though it wasn't cool if you were into punk to be into any bloated rock bands. But yeah. so I saw the firm and I bought the Jimmy Jimmy Page shirt. And then after school the next day, because of course I had to wear it to school, my friends like, "You want to go see these pan- these bands in Stanford?" I was like, "Definitely." Yeah. And we get there and I was like, "Oh man, I'm wearing a Jimmy Page shirt." Uh oh. <laughs> I didn't have time to change into my leather studded jacket. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and so this kid called me on it, and I got really scared, and I went in the bathroom and turned it inside out. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, because then it was an anarchist statement, right? Exactly. You wear a Jimmy Page shirt inside out, you're saying, fuck you, Page. That's exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's like turning your back. That's hilarious. Clever. (laughs) Nice. Your uh, your next tune, Sean, is uh, by the Minutemen, and it's Ain't Talking About Love. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the Minutemen, but they're one of my favorite bands of all time. Not super familiar, no. Okay, um, they were they were in the hardcore slash punk scene. Yeah. But really unusual band in that the lead singer D Boone basically refused to play bar chords. You know, he played weird jazzy diminished chords and used weird fingerings, and um, he didn't play. He played clean through his okay. amp. Okay. For the most part. So unlike every other band that was how distorted and loud could you be? Yeah. They were loud but clean. Yep. But playing that kind of music, which was super unusual. In fact I saw them one time. It was like eighteen or something. And they're basically kind of booed off stage. There's six other bands and they're sitting there doing their thing and he's playing these weird jazzy chords. <laughs> and mm. everyone's like, you know, they want their skulls crushed. <laughs> But they're super lyrically inventive, really, really smart. Mike Watt, the bass player, has been in like 10 different bands. He's an incredible bass player. But this song in particular, I love so much because, you know, hanging out with kind of the hardcore scene, Mm -hmm. it was the least cool thing possible to like Van Halen. Yes, yes. (laughs) 
even though I, I secretly really liked at least the first couple of, <laughs> it wasn't so it wasn't so with them diver down and forward yeah uh, but everything before then I was crazy about the, the first stuff four records out. yeah absolutely me too so the Minutemen kind of took the piss out of them by doing ain't talking about love but yeah. the way they did it was to just play it straight you yeah. know which I thought was the funniest insult it's just not to like change the lyrics or talk about how they suck or anything, just to play their song <laughs> as a statement about how moronic the song is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the interlude part there, I got to the edge and I stopped and looked down. And I lost a lot of friends there, baby. Oh, I got no time. Yeah. You know, it's so yeah. cheesy. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. So um, <laughs> I got a, a lot of mileage out of that song both ways. Yeah. So your next tune is uh, by Captain Beefheart, and uh, it's Lick My Decals Off, Baby. One of the all-time great titles. Yes. Album. I love uh, it. Basically saying screw you to the label. Um, it's not the sexual entendre it might seem like. But yeah. Captain Beefheart, one of my all-time favorite bands, is one of those bands that, A, people tend to really hate, but B... You tend, if you say you like Captain Beefheart, you tend to get accused of only liking them because you, it gives you uh, cred, at, you know, at art school parties to pick up girls wearing berets. <laughs> In fact, I once wrote a 6,000 word piece uh, to a friend of mine proving why I did like Captain Beefheart. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> because he didn't believe me. In any case, uh, this is the title song from that album, which is my favorite Beefheart album, uh -huh. and which is the the one that came right after Trout Mask Replica, okay. which is a, a double album that is famous for being basically unlistenable. <laughs> um, I actually really like it, but it, it's not the kind of thing, you know, you make a cocktail uh, with a wife and uh, sit on the back patio and listen to. <laughs> do, you know the, do you know the album, the Lou Reed album, Metal Machine Music? Yes. That is the most unlistenable album of all time. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. In a genuine, a genuine sense. Yes. But it, it kind of is compared to that also. Um, Lick My Decals Off Baby is much more accessible. It's really bluesy. Um, and this titled song, the, the musicianship is so good in it um, while still being really experimental, particularly uh, the drummer, John French. Yeah. I don't want to... Uh, uh, insult you by talking down Neil Peart, but uh, John French <laughs> should be as well known as Neil Peart because he's an unbelievable drummer that basically no one's ever heard of. Really? I, I've never heard of him. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Go back and listen to that album and just listen to his playing. It, it's astonishingly inventive and never falls into a, a lazy groove. You know, mm -hmm. he's just all over the place with, uh, you know, amazing accents, yeah, instead of just playing straight through. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. Uh, next tune is Husker Du, and uh, or the band is Husker Du, and the tune is Pink Turns to Blue. Uh, so again, we're kind of back into the, the hardcore punk scene. They came out of the Minneapolis yeah. scene, you know, with Replacements and Soul Asylum, um, and another a bunch of other bands in the '80s, Dinosaur Jr. They were they were my favorite punk band. Uh, all through high school and still one of my favorite bands. I've seen them like 15 times. But Bob Mould, the, the lead guitar player and the singer, had this kind of wall of sound, not in the Phil Spector sense, but <laughs> wall of sound uh, way of playing that yeah. is like 
slightly abrasive and heavily distorted, but also really beautiful. Okay. Kind of like, you know, uh, Roger McGuinn yeah. of, of the, bird, the birds, you know, his sound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a, a Rickenbacker, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of, it's that, but heavier and distorted. But this, the, this album, Zen Arcade, it's a double album. That's kind of like the hardcore version of Tommy. It's sort of like a hardcore rock opera. Cool. Yeah. Um, and it's got piano parts in between the songs and little interludes and a bunch of the songs have like backward masking, you know, like the, the Hendrix technique. Yeah. Um, Are you experienced? Exactly. So it's, it's really inventive a lot more than a lot of punk. The lyrics are super melancholy. Yeah. Um, Bob Gould uh, eventually ended up coming out of the closet. So at the time, at this time, in the very male, very straight scene, he was obviously totally isolated. So you can hear that in the music. Mm. Um, and so my sort of dramatic 16-year-old persona very much related to <laughs> to that sense of weird teenage isolation. Yeah. So I, you know, I used to like, read the lyrics over and over and be like, "Yeah, Bob, you really know what you're talking about." <laughs> I had a '77 Saab in high school, and I had a Huskadu bumper sticker yeah. on, on the back bumper. And my father was going to make me t- take it off because he was sure it was Swedish for "fuck you." Oh, really? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I tried to explain to him, actually, Who's Canoe was like a weird 50s board game. Yeah. That's where they got the name from. Okay. I was like, no, he didn't believe me. <laughs> Why did he think that? Well, because the way it's spelled, it does kind of look like fuck you. Yeah. And it yeah, has it's... lots over oh, the, the U. Yeah, the U's in, the, in the Motley Crue style. Yeah, yeah. So... I don't know, because it was the kind of thing I would have done. <laughs> that's that's why. That's why. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> but like a true, a, a true fifteen-year-old punk or sixteen-year-old punk, I refused to take it off. Yeah, yeah, and it stayed on, yeah. did it? it? It definitely did. Nice. <laughs> I wish I still had a car. Yeah. <laughs> Or at least just the back bumper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, your last tune, Sean, is uh, by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and it is Red Right Hand. Nick Cave is interesting to me, mostly because I was really into his first band, The Birthday Party. Mm-hmm. They're Australian. It's super abrasive and aggressive music, yeah. uh, which I, I say complimentarily. Nick broke up the band and sort of transformed himself into this Australian Elvis style crooner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, which was the next incarnation, it's a completely different style of music. Yeah. Really slow and lugubrious. And he has a, he has a deep baritone mm-hmm. and the songs are very literary and very elusive um, and so it just, it was a real gear shift from the birthday party. And at first I didn't like it at all, Okay. but I happened to have a girlfriend at the time who was far more in love with him than she ever was with me. <laughs> <laughs> and so we ended up listening to the first three bad seeds CDs, right. was CDs back then uh, quite a bit. And after a while, I really started to get what he was going for, ended up falling in love with those albums yeah and and so fortunately uh just a week ago i had a chance to go see the reformed bad seeds down in portland it was really one of the greatest concerts i've ever seen really 
Yeah. Wow. What what did you love about it? Uh, well, on the one hand, just musically, it's an amazing thing 25 years later to see someone play basically every song on CDs that were in the rotation of your, your young life. We laid on the futon and smoked cigarettes and listened to those CDs over and over yeah. and over again. <laughs> Uh, so I, I knew the songs backwards and forwards, so it was really nostalgic. And also the band, technically, are amazing. Yeah. And all the players kind of refuse to play anything in an expected style. The bass playing is, is huge and doomed. And um, the drumming, is, is again, doesn't just fall into easy grooves ever. It's more about accents and Mick Hardy... Uh, plays guitar, but he also plays distorted, amplified violin on a oh. lot of it. Wow. Okay. So it's, it sounds really unusual, but somehow over the course of those years, that all, all the songs sounded like even fifty percent better. Really? Yeah. I guess breaking them up and just letting them sit in the vault, and then bringing them out again, he was able to see them in a completely different light. But that would all have been fine, and it would have been a great concert. But yeah. He has become some kind of crazy preacher. Okay. Um, I don't know if you've seen him before. He's a, he's unusual looking. He's like six six. He's really skinny. Yeah, it, it, I actually uh, I, I was familiar with him, but I did see pictures um, because, as you say, they're out again. And I saw I th- it might have been your picture actually that you had taken at the show, and right. uh, you know the descriptive of preacher is completely accurate. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean he wears a suit. He doesn't sing in the traditional sense. Like I said, he's got that baritone. He's sort of almost like telling stories, even though he's singing them. Yeah. None of the, the songs have choruses sometimes, and they're they're catchy in some ways, but he very rarely repeats himself. Okay. So it's it's not like verse, chorus, verse. Okay, here's the part where he says that same line 14 more times. Yeah. It's sort of like he tells a story, so it's it's sort it's mesmerizing in that way. He has this insane magnetism. Okay. That every man and every woman in there wanted to get near him. Really? In this weird kind of disturbing cultish sense. It sounds like he sounds like a cult leader. I was going to say. Yeah, he kind of looks a little bit like Jim Jones. Yeah. And and as I when I posted that picture, as I said, you you understand why people join cults when you see someone who so completely had three thousand people at his bidding. And I and I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but I've seen so many concerts, I've never seen anything like what that was like. And he he does this thing also that he it, it's a seated concert, it's a nice auditorium yeah. in Portland. And he immediately said, "Everyone comes, stand right in front of me." Oh. And so all these people rush down. The security freaks out. They're trying to get people to sit back down. And he keeps saying, "Don't let them stop you. There's nothing they can do. Come closer. Come closer." Wow. Uh, and so half the audience was pushed down right in front of him. And then he just walks out among them while he's singing and people lay hands on him. Yeah. Like in those weird footage of Louisiana baptisms. From yeah. The 20s. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really crazy. And I, I tried to, you know, people ask me how the show was and I tried to explain to them and they're like, yeah, sure. Unless you were there, it's impossible to explain what, being part of that was like and personality wise i'm not someone who wants to indulge in that kind of behavior <laughs> uh but I, yeah he had me from the very beginning he walks through the crowd and pulls his jacket aside and, and gets people to touch his heart and feel it beat 
Really? And meanwhile, yes. Wow. And he's meanwhile singing these deep, swampy, crazy songs. Yeah. And he keeps going up and encouraging people to come touch him and touch his heart. And it's really bizarrely emotional. Yeah, absolutely it would be, yeah. Wow. And then at the, at the end, he called, he just pulled like 75 people up on stage. Yeah. Facing out to the audience and then stood in front of them and sang uh, Stagger Lee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, you know, it's the old blues song that yeah. everyone in the world has covered. Did this crazy version of it with 75 people standing behind him and then all the people in front of him. And, and all those people just rapped wow. looking at him. And, and then he, he motioned for them to kneel down. Yeah. And everyone knelt down around him. And I was like, oh, my God. This is a cult, man. <laughs> it is a cult. Right? Imagine kneeling in front of someone. Yeah. You know, as if they were some sort of prophet. Exactly. That's what this sounds like. Yeah. It was, it was bizarre and disconcerting and excellent and... Uh, very deeply mirrored all at the same all time. All the same time. I loved it. Wow. I love that. So if you if you get a chance to to go to one of the shows on this tour, you absolutely have to. I wonder if he's going to come up to Canada. If he does, I actually, I, I'm going to get in on this. And again, I, I, I also do not have the, you know, the personality type that kind of lends itself to that. But it's fascinating to yeah. watch, right? Oh, yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a sociological experiment. Absolutely. It's like the, you know the Milgram experiments, that thing that took place at Stanford? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, back in the 60s where people would shock each other, although they weren't really hooked up to electrodes. And, yeah. You know, just to kind of prove how sadistic humans are in general. I, I, that's, I was sitting there thinking, this is like the Milgram experiment. Like, how far can you push people? Yeah, yeah. You know, how badly do they want to be told what to do or be amazed and in love and worship somebody? Yep. Yeah, uh, and the answer is pretty damn far. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a very interesting anthropological study, right? Absolutely. Yeah. If, if he were playing like down the West Coast, I would fly down and go see that a few more times because yeah. I'm pretty sure that's something I will never see again in my lifetime. I don't think you will, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. All right. That was a great way to uh, end your list. Listen, I learned a lot today, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, of course. Any chance to talk about music and uh, have an interested listener and not be told you're being pedantic is, is a boon for me. I love talking about music. So uh, this podcast, I think, is fantastic. Perfect. Thank you, man. You definitely came to the right place. That's for sure, because I am the same. Maybe we can get you back on. We'll go through a bunch of other songs. Absolutely, I would love that. Maybe we'll just do an oh, entire jazz uh, <laughs> we, podcast. We could do that. We could do that for sure. <laughs> be fun for me. I don't know if anyone else wants to do it. <laughs> You'd be surprised, man. I just I had somebody on talking about Calypso the other day. So, yeah, oh. you never know. It, oh. it, it it just varies. It varies all across the board, and that's what's fascinating about doing this show is that you hear so much um, variance in perspective even through genre it's just it's it's fascinating to me yeah i was listening to your friend uh, the hip-hop one yeah which i mean i like pretty much every kind of music and hip-hop is is uh, i like some hip-hop but i really don't know anything about it yeah i was just i'm older than kids who came up with it in high school yeah so i don't have that you know there's that um 
that saying that the music you like the rest of your life is the music you listen to when you first start having sex. So <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, that's very true. It is true. I was listening to Who's Could Do when I started having sex. So, <laughs> and as it turns out, but so I don't have that with hip hop. And so it was interesting to listen to that podcast, which is my point anyway, yeah. to hear someone so invested in something I actually, I don't know a whole lot about. Yeah, it is interesting. It's interesting for me as well. I mean, I, it, and it's, as I said earlier, it's a huge learning experience. It just, it just widens perspective. So I really enjoy it. Yeah. Any chance to, to soak up any, any knowledge about music that you don't have is uh, one that should be taken. Absolutely agree. All cool. right, and man, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really enjoyed you. our chat. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. All right, this has been Brent Jensen and No Sleep Till Sudbury with my very special guest, Mr. Sean Bodwin. Thank you very much and take good care. Till next time. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.